Even more sad news this week. Frank Borman, the commander of Gemini 7 and Apollo 8, has died at the age of 95. So today we're celebrating his life, and to do this we're joined by Chris Henry of the EAA Museum in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, home of the Frank Borman Collection. Do you have any Frank Borman stories? We'd love to hear them. Let us know via our social media pages at Space and Things Podcast on Threads, Instagram, and Facebook, or via the contact form on our website. But right now, it's time for episode 168 of the Space and Things Podcast. Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 168 of our podcast. How are you doing, Emily? I am doing good. I'm a little under the weather, but hopefully nobody can hear it. (laughs) I had a lot of tea before I did this. So how are you doing, Dave? Well, tea is the cure for everything. So uh, it is. Yeah, I'm I'm doing pretty well. It's been an emotional week. So uh, I think we should just get started with uh, our main feature this week. And I'm going to admit right now that, as I just said, it's likely that I may get quite emotional during this episode, but we will do our very best. And As Emily said in the intro, this week we've lost another of our heroes. On November 7th, Frank Borman died at the age of 95. Frank Frederick Borman II was one of the iconic astronauts of the early space age and influenced space policy outside of his astronaut career. A graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point and one of the first graduates of the Aerospace Research Pilot School along with new nine astronaut Jim McDivitt, the no-nonsense serious Borman was selected to NASA's second group in September 1962, which is not bad for a pilot whose early career was nearly dive-bombed by a perforated eardrum during the 1950s. Now, Borman, even for an astronaut, was uniquely goal-oriented. He stated matter-of-factly in a PBS interview, I was there mainly because of the Cold War. The Apollo program was a battle in the Cold War. That's why it was funded. That's why it was started. And of course, it had a lot of other virtues, But it was a battle in the Cold War and we won. That was my main interest. I didn't go into the NASA program to pick up rocks or go to the moon or anything else. I went in there because I was a military officer and that was the next notch in my profession. Borman was initially slated to fly on Gemini 3 alongside Alan Shepard, but an inner ear disorder grounded the latter astronaut. Gemini 3 would instead feature the talents of Virgil Gus Grissom and John Young. However, Borman still gained a plum assignment, and that was the command of Gemini 7, alongside good friend and mission pilot Jim Lovell in December 1965. This mission set a spaceflight endurance record of 14 days, showing that astronauts could survive a longer duration flight to the moon. In addition, Borman and Lovell, in part, performed the first rendezvous between two crewed space vehicles, Gemini 7 and Gemini 6, which was, which was crewed by Wally Sherrard and Thomas P. Stafford, uh, and they briefly met up in Earth's orbit. Following his return, Borman was promoted to colonel in the U.S. Air Force, becoming the youngest person to hold that military rank at age 37. The Apollo 1 tragedy of January 27, 1967, changed the entire program, and Borman assumed a role that made Apollo safer and ready to fly before the decade's end. He oversaw the changes to the Apollo Command module at North American Aviation and in many ways became an unsung hero of the program. 
By 1968, a new assignment beckoned command of Apollo 8, which became the world's first crewed circumlunar spaceflight. Much has been written about this iconic spaceflight, culminating with a moving televised reading of Genesis on Christmas Eve 1968. In many ways, Borman and his crew, Lovell and Lunar Module pilot Bill Anders, are credited with saving 1968, one of the most tumultuous years during that decade. The Earthrise photo captured during this mission remains one of the last century's most famous, breathtaking images. Following Apollo 8, Borman was assigned as a liaison to President Richard Nixon and oversaw the President's remarks during Apollo 11, NASA's first moon landing. This speaks to the enormous influence Borman wielded during that time. Ironically, the admitted Cold War warrior paved the way for US-Soviet collaboration in space. Borman's trip to the Soviet Union during that time undoubtedly set the scene for future US-Soviet efforts in space, such as 1975's Apollo-Soyuz test project mission. This is despite Borman memorably referring to a Russian general as a candy-assed white wine-drinking bomber pilot during this visit. As pure poetry. Beautiful. Post-NASA, Borman became the CEO of Eastern Airlines in 1975. His face and image became part of the airline's advertising during this time. While Borman resigned from Eastern in 1986, I believe, his retirement year saw him pursue private business ventures and restore vintage aircraft alongside his much-loved wife, Susan, with whom he had two children, Frederick and Edwin. He also wrote his autobiography, Countdown, with Robert J. Serling in 1988. When Susan began suffering the symptoms of Alzheimer's, Borman remained devoted to her as her primary caretaker. He and Susan were married for over 70 years, only separated by her 2021 passing. Frank and Susan Borman are now reunited in the heavens. And so today we're talking to Chris Henry. Now, some of our listeners may have listened to the Apollo 13 Minute podcast, for which Chris was a co-host alongside Jim O'Kane. It's an incredible podcast where each episode, they focus on a single minute of Ron Howard's Apollo 13 movie. They interviewed some incredible people in the making of that podcast, including Frank Borman and a very special guest, Emily Carney. Chris is the museum program's coordinator of the Experimental Aircraft Association Museum in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, which is home to the Frank Borman Collection, among other incredible exhibits. In this role, he had built up a very strong friendship with Frank, so he reached out to see if he would speak to us today to tell us some stories about this incredible man. Ten, nine, we have ignition sequence start. The engines are on. Four, three, two, one. Zero. We have commit. We have. We have lift off. Lift off at 7:51 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining us this week, and we're sorry it's under such sad circumstances. Now, before we get to talking about Frank, please let us know a bit about yourself and how you ended up at the EAA Museum and how you met Frank Borman. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And uh, I agree. It, uh, I wish it was under a better time. So uh, a little bit about me. I've been an airplane nerd uh, since I was probably about seven or eight. Wanted to be a construction worker, oddly enough. And then I saw this movie called Pop Gun and that kind of ruined everything <laughs> for me. So uh, as far as a construction worker goes, went to school, became an air traffic controller, uh, was a medical helicopter dispatcher. And wow. then um, 
I did ATT for a while, and then I started working here. Yeah, I'd been coming to the air show here since the 90s, but really always just, I wanted to work here. I knew this was my passion one. Uh, so I started working here about 11 years ago. Um, and actually started, when I started in the Apollo stuff, I, I would I would start with hosting some gatherings during not just the uh, the the air show, but throughout the year in the museum, some reunions. A lot of times it was around our B-17 that we have. Uh, right. So I was getting B-17 veterans. And then our, our CEO, Jack Pelton, uh, had said, hey, you know, we really should look at doing a reunion with Apollo 13. So I, I was like, yeah, that'd be really cool. And I didn't realize that what he was saying was, Chris, go reach out to the people. Uh, so it was really wild that I got to, to reach out and I got to host two surviving crew members of uh, Apollo 13 and, uh, and Gene Kranz and a few others. Got to know them pretty well. They, they were just such wonderful people that coming back, we do a Space Day event every year here. Um, and we get a different speaker. And I had reached out to Gene to see if he would talk in our museum. And uh, he said, oh, you know, I've, I've just accepted to do something in Houston. However, I'll, I will, uh, I'll get you somebody. I know, I know a guy that would be perfect. And I said, okay. And that was it. I never talked to Gene again about the subject. And it was about a week later, I get a phone call and somebody on a cell phone is really kind of garbled. And all I can make out is that thing you need in October, I'll come speak at it. And I'm like, um, okay, I, I can't hear who this is. And he's like, okay, hold on a second. And he gets inside and he goes, can you hear me now? And I was like, yeah. And uh, the voice on the other end said, that, that speak, uh, the speaker you need in October, I'll come do it. I was like, oh, okay. I was like, well, who is this? And he was like, this is Frank Borman. <laughs> wow. And I was just quiet for a second. because, like, yeah, I'm just like, um. <laughs> and then he's just like, you know, like Apollo 8. You know, I was like, no, oh, God. Like, no, I know who you are. <laughs> and uh, that was the first time I ever talked to him. And um, I hosted him a little bit later for that event. And, uh, you know, we're like, Hey, we'll set up your airfare. And he's like, no, I'm just going to fly my T-34 there. I'll, I'll be there, you know, and just picking up the airport. Nice. It was kind of a stiff wind day. I mean, it was a little bumpy day and we went out, me and a a friend of mine and we're like, well, you know, hopefully he can make it in, but if not, maybe we'll have to go to a different airport to go pick him up. And he makes this beautiful three point landing. I mean, just gorgeous in this like stiff, bumpy wind day. And he taxis up and he gets out and he just like pulled his aviators off and he's like, I'm Frank Borman. And we always laughed that it was like the I'm Rick James. Like you, you were just like, yep, yep, you are, you know. And uh, and um, I had a ladder there, like a step ladder. And he was just like, what's that for? I'm like, well, in case you need help getting down. And he's like, I'm not that old, you know. And, uh, and we were just kind of off and running. That is literally the first time I ever talked to and uh, first met Frank. So when was that? Um, geez, that had to be, uh, I'm thinking 2016, something like that. Wow. Okay. So yeah, that's such a cool story. I love that. <laughs> it was a friendship I never, I never prepared myself for him and I just really hit it off uh, my wife, uh, and him hit it off. This was the first event that, uh, I was working where like my wife got to come along and got to kind of see what I do. And it was really funny because my wife and her mindset was, I'm with you and we are hosting this dignitary. And Frank, uh, his mindset is, this is a lady and I need to open the door for her. (laughs) But in my wife's mind, it was, I need to make sure I open the door for Frank. 
Uh, so they actually would start arguing and then start bumping each other out of the way on purpose of the door so they could try to open the door for one another. Uh, so we actually have a picture somewhere of my wife and Frank trying to beat each other to the car door to open it for one another. Wow. So it, it really became this really goofy uh, uh, scenario that I never a million years thought that all would happen. And, uh, you know, what happened is, you know, with, when you get to host these folks, they're wonderful people. They're so good to you that you can't help but feel like, wow, I, they're, you know, they're kind of my friend. You know, but you also want to respect her privacy. So, you know, I, I would thank someone for coming and then you'd, yeah, you keep in touch with them, but you don't really bug them too much. You know, you don't want to be that. They, they get a lot of that. And uh, after that space day thing, Frank would just kind of out of nowhere call once in a while. I'm like, what are you doing? You know, and I'm like, no, I'm a little bit work, but it was cool work to talk to you, you know. And we would just talk airplanes for a few minutes and we'd be like, all right, well, I'll catch you later. <laughs> And I remember coming home from work, it was maybe about a month after we had hooked them. And I told my wife, I'm like, I don't know how to say this, but I think I'm friends with Frank Borman. And <laughs> she was like, what do you mean? And she's like, he kind of calls and we chat and we talk airplanes and, and then that's it. Like, there's no point. Like, we're not working on anything. Like, we're just kind of chatting airplane. You know, it took like a good month of that going on. We were just sort of like, oh, I think, I think this is just a friendship. It, one I was very lucky to have. Absolutely. Okay, so how did the Frank Borman collection end up at the EAA Museum? Well, so it was one of those calls. I was walking through the halls of the museum after I had joined the museum team, and he uh, he called, and uh, I still remember it because he said, "Are you uh, are you in the middle of anything?" And I said, "Would you care if I was?" And he was like, "Nope." And I was like, "Okay." <laughs> Frank was like, "Hey, you know, uh, in the museum there isn't a lot of space stuff." Uh, and he, that was an understatement. Uh, we had exactly one item that was actually space uh, related. And that was, oh, so two, we had our spaceship one mock-up, it's a replica. And we had a bumper sticker that uh, went, up on, uh, went up on the shuttle, I think, with Gibson and a couple others. That was it. That was the extent of our space collection. And then I said, yo, Frank, it, it, you know, he said, is that because of you're not interested or is it just because it's hard to get? And, and I said, well, it's because it's hard to get. And for anybody listening that uh, the works aren't uh, for an aviation museum or, or, you know, even if you collect, you know that that, that stuff's really tough to get, especially yeah. when you start talking about iconic missions or really historic mission. And Frank said, well, I have a few items. Do you want them? And I will give them to you. And, you know, we were blown away because technically that makes us an air and space people, which changes, you know, where you are. And yeah, so we said, yeah. And he says, well, I'm not giving them to you. You got to come out and get them out in Montana. Uh, so <laughs> I said, okay. And we started talking and he goes, I think a van will be big enough, you know, and well, we go out there and I'll never forget. We, uh, we drive out at me and, uh, Zach was our curator and at the time and, wow. and Adam, uh, who has an ongoing joke about chocolate flavored beer with it with uh, with Frank, and we get there and Frank goes, "Hey, I've uh, I've changed my mind," and for a brief second I was like, "Oh my god!" Like he doesn't want to give us anything, and I'm gonna have to explain this like massive trip to Montana to my work. <laughs> and he said, I, "I've decided to give you everything." Wow! Can you take it all? Would you take it all? So we went out there thinking we were getting about 20 pieces. Uh, we came home with over a thousand individual uh, artifacts. Took us about five days uh, of packing and loading and documenting. 
Um, the neat thing is we filmed uh, myself and Frank just walking around because it was all up in his hangar. The hangar was kind of done up like a man cave. <laughs> and we walked around his hangar and he just walked us through each artifact and we filmed it. And then that way when we came back, we knew what to put on tag and what each thing was. You know, it was just funny because he was showing us like different photos of like dignitary he what, you know, and he'd be like that guy or, or that person was really cool. And he'd go to the next one. He'd be like, I've heard kind of a jerk, you know, and he would just <laughs> try to get I, I hate to have to interrupt no. you, but did he ever talk to you about the candy ass Russian white wine drinking Russian yeah. general that he discussed in Countdown? Yeah, no. That part in that book changed my life. Yeah. I swear to God. I, I read that book and I was like, this is hysterical. He almost caused an international yeah. incident. Oh, yeah. Did he talk about that? He, he he touched on it a little bit only that that happened. And then it was funny because the first time when we were starting to fill out paperwork, I had never heard him use that phrase. We were filling out paperwork. He, he was like, oh, I don't want to be able to cause too much trouble. Uh, but, you know, I want to make sure I, we get all the paperwork right. And we were like, absolutely. But, you know, I'm not a candy ad. We're like, oh my God, like Frank said it, you know, <laughs> but God, it was amazing. One of the, you know, one of the most powerful pieces we got was a picture of Susan that's on Beta Claw. And, uh, he took that up there with him on Apollo 8, but he wouldn't remove it from his pocket, uh, because he said he was afraid that it would distract him from his job, but he wanted her with him. So he got it in his pocket. And, uh, Sorry, I wasn't ready for that. That, uh, that's a lot, you know, that, um, that's the kind of guy, uh, he was. So, uh, Susan mattered a lot to him more than anything. And, uh, so we wanted to make sure we put Susan in the exhibit. Um, he gave a really great interview out in Billing, well, very, you know, the Billing, uh, Tribune. I believe it was, and they did this cool interview. And in, in it, he talked about how the greatest accomplishment in his life wasn't any of the missions. It was getting Susan to agree to marry him. Oh. So he had reached out and we asked them, because we were like, why mess with that? That was perfect how we got it. And we asked them if we could have that sound clip, and um, and they gave it to us. And now when you go to the exhibit um, and you hold your phone, like a smartphone, over with picture Susan, I mean, you hold your phone over some picture that actually plays and it comes out and it's him talking about her. Yeah. Hope I can get through this interview. I didn't, uh, oh, I guess I wasn't prepared for that. By nothing, so. The air got a little, du- yeah, it's got a, it's a little dusty at a my house dusty as well. So. You know, yeah. I'll just jump in. I think it goes to show how much he trusted you and the museum to give you that photo, which he took on Apollo 8 and other things as well, but, uh, you know, a photo that, that he took with him and, and held so dear to himself on that mission where he may not have come home. Yeah. And there it is for, for all of us now to see, and you are the custodians of it. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And, um, and, and certainly having it there with his voice as well, as you just described, makes it an even more wonderful exhibit. So you've, you've completely justified his faith in you in, in displaying it because the way you've displayed it, in my opinion. I really, I really appreciate you saying that. We worked, uh, so his, his ranch was, a, I want to say it's about an hour and a half outside of Billing at the time. Now, A, it's beautiful. B, it was wintertime. Uh, and see the closest town was an hour and a half away. That was it. Billings was like the closest town that had like stores and there was like a gas station in between and that was about it. 
So it took us several days. We would have to get up in the morning. We were staying in Billings. So we'd wake up at breakfast, clean out the stores that we could find of all their packing material, <laughs> tape, bubble wrap, everything. Because remember, we thought we were only getting like 12 feet or 20 feet maybe. We would drive out to the ranch, work until lunch, take a break, come back into town, eat, restock, go back out, and we'd work till about 9 o'clock at night, and then we would come home call the day. So we worked some pretty long days, and I told you that story to tell you that, you know, we were kind of wiped out. We were kind of, you know, you're, you're done. We're all packed up, though. And we're getting ready to leave. We had to rent another truck. We had a rental truck that we had paid to weld the van. And as we're getting ready to leave, I'll never forget, he said, uh, I'm trusting you with my life. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, when, when Frank wow. told you that, you're like, up until that point, like, we were like, this is really cool. This is these are going to be amazing on display. And, you know, and to Frank, he was like, yeah, yeah, you know, and he was kind of, he was pretty casual about it. But when we left and he said, I'm trusting you with my life. Suddenly that got real. And then, you know, we had, I can't remember how many hours it was to drive home. We weren't going to make it in one night. So I remember uh, we slept in ships uh, so <laughs> that we could watch the truck. Wow. We were so afraid that, God forbid somebody broke into this truck. You know, we had a lock and everything, but we just we just slept in shift. Just, we're like, we can pull this for, for a night or two so that there was never a night or never a part of the night where somebody wasn't keeping an eye on the vehicle. It was a rough trip. And I remember we got back. We immediately got an inventory together, and we built an exhibit. It was actually done in time for December 2018. Uh, so it was the 60th oh, nice. anniversary of Apollo 8. Yeah. Uh, he came out, he was the right brother speaker that year, and then he cut the ribbon. Nice. Uh, so we were almost like 50 years right on. And I'll never forget, he cut the ribbon, he dedicated the exhibit, you know, and, and he was really proud of what we had done with it. And then that night at the banquet, he spoke. And while we were rehearsing and kind of going through everything in the daytime for the, for the banquet, our VP, uh, Rick Larson here, Rick said, um, well, you got to figure out how to, how to end it, you know, and, and he, he kind of joked and, you know, he's like, man, it'd be really cool if you recreated your ending from the broadcast, uh, Christmas Eve 68. And Frank said, yeah, I'll just do that. And we're like, whoa, okay. You know, <laughs> so we had it all cute. Now that Frank, do you need me to make a few cards? And I just remember Frank would get this glimmer in his eye when he was about to give you a bunch of grief, you know, I mean, <laughs> and it was all good fun. And he just goes, like, you know, I'm the one that said it, right? You know, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> And, and we did. He recited that. And you can just hear a pin drop in this room full of 600 people in our museum. There he is, Frank, up there reciting his Christmas Eve uh, part of that, that transmission. And then I had him back for AirVenture one year when we had the, uh, we had the, I think we had eight, seven or eight Apollo astronauts. We had Gene Kranz and a couple of guys from uh, Mission Control here. And Frank calls me because I'm flying myself. We knew that. But he's in problem with weather between here and Billing. So he said, I either come two days early or I don't come at all. Now, normally in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, it is not hard to get a hotel room. That one week in July, it's extremely tough to get a hotel room. Yeah. The world's largest air show. But we can't have this astronaut reunion and not have Frank, you know. So we're like, yeah, come early. We'll figure it out. We were able to get his room bumped out. However, we had nothing on his itinerary for those two days. So I was like, Frank what are you going to do for two days? And he's like, I'm just going to ride around on the golf cart with you. And I'm like, <laughs> all right, like this is going to be interesting. So like people would call and they'd just be like, Hey, there's this fire. We need you to come put out and have a drive over there. 
And they'd be like, oh my God, that's Frank Borman. And I was like, well, well yeah, but what, you know, what's the problem? And they were like, well, never mind, we'll take care of that. But that's Frank, <laughs> you know. And about the third or fourth time that happened, he was like, uh, he's like, well, you got to put me on the payroll or what? You know, so, um, but it's also extremely busy. So, like, if you're on staff, you don't really get to like eat on time. So, there were a few days where it was like one, two o'clock and we couldn't get something to eat. And I never lived that down. <laughs> that I starved him and how badly I mistreated Frank. He would call me, he called me Chris, he would call me every Christmas Eve, the man to talk to my wife. And then he would make sure that she was cooking dinner and not me because that he wanted to make sure that we were actually going to have Christmas dinner. <laughs> so, um, that, is the, that is the kind of stuff that uh, uh, my niece, uh, Abby was a volunteer and you know, several times throughout that week, he would just look at her and he'd be like, we're going to, we're going to eat today, aren't we? You know, and, uh, fast forward a couple years, I got the host Michael Collins and, um, Michael Collins had asked, is there any way that we could just go sit on a flight line and air conditioned vehicle, and watch the air show for a few minutes. Had his, da- his daughters came with us. Really, really cool. And he was having something to drink, air conditioning, watching the air show. And he had just had something to eat. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, if Frank ever finds out that like Michael Collins ate on time and, you know, <laughs> well, I had told Michael Collins this and he's like, oh, I'm going to let Frank know. <laughs> and he does. And then I get, I, it, it's like minutes later, I get a phone call from Frank and it's just like, what is this? He's like, Apollo 8 comes, um, you just roll us in the dirt. He goes, Apollo 11 <laughs> is there. You're taking care of them. And it was hilarious. Like, so I never lived it down. I mean, I, I talked to Frank, um, this Saturday before everything happened and uh he was still giving me grief about the bad food that i uh would give him when he would come out here so it was so much fun like whenever you call like you call we talked maybe i don't know we would talk talk probably about like once every other week something like that the last few years i mean it was wow pretty wild That, that is wonderful that is really wonderful thank you for sharing these stories um yeah I, I had a I had a great time visiting your museum almost a year ago right now and um the the, the exhibit's wonderful the, a, a big part of it is his role in Apollo 1 obviously you've got some great artifacts there did did you ever get him talking about about that or about his relationship with with Ed because they were close weren't they they yeah I I really I mean and there might be some folks that 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 would pop up to be the same level uh as Ed I feel that Ed was always his best friend and Pat was very close with Susan. Um, you know, they were very, very close and a couple of things. I mean, he did talk about the Apollo one fire. I'll be honest with you. I could tell that I think it still hurt him. I think he was still affected by it, but he did tell me that, uh, when you see like from the earth to the moon, uh, depicted it, that, uh, he, it depicted it very real that, uh, when they were going to do the investigation, that uh, Jim Webb said, don't worry about protecting me. Don't worry about protecting anybody. You work for Gus, Roger, and Ed during lunch. He did uh, tell me a story that uh, maybe was in uh, the more recent book about basically him helping Pat persuade the White House that Ed was going to go to West Point to be buried. It was very pretty accurately depicted in the, in the book that I read, um, mm. uh, his story matched up really closely with that, uh, there was some disputing about where he was going to go and, uh, and where his wishes were to go. So I, I could tell it still affect him. Ed was his friend. I, I, he said the one thing that I thought he said that was always powerful was that 
if they ever decide to put a picture of an astronaut next to the word in the dictionary, it should be a picture of Ed White. Nice. I always thought that that was pretty cool. Somebody here asked him once about if he could he talk about Ed, and he almost verbatim gave the speech from uh, from the Earth to the Moon when he's telling the, the wow. jury or the hearing about what the astronauts were like. Uh, it was incredible. So, you know, when you made friends with Frank, you made him for life. And Ed White, uh, I feel, was probably his best friend. But uh, he did talk about the, you know, the investigation. I- I'll tell you that we were out at his house, and he had banker's boxes. That he was very organized. Uh, and Frank had files and everything that were coming to the museum that we were working with. And uh, I just remember he had uh, one box that just, it was a banker's box that just had Apollo 1 on it. And I remember we would not, out of respect for Frank, open it in front of Frank because we just didn't want to do that. Uh, where the other stuff we were, you know, we would open it up, just kind of see what was in there so we can kind of take a couple pictures real quick and say, okay, we got this stuff, let's put it in a truck. Uh, for that one, we just took a picture of the box and with the label and we just didn't feel it was appropriate and we didn't want to, you know, we didn't want to offend Frank. And there's nothing top secret or crazy in there. It was, it was all the paperwork, the research, the notes he took, and then the hearing, like the prepared uh, books, I guess you would say, um, for the hearings and things like that. Uh, so we have those in our archives here. Wow. I mean, that, that's um, quite an honor to, to have all that, isn't it? <laughs> what real honor. I mean, it is. To be trusted with that from, from what I consider giants. I mean, the, his exhibit sits right next to the angle exhibit for Joe and Jeannie and... Um, those are giants of space flight right there. And yeah. uh, trust you with it. It's very special. It's always funny. I, and I'd love to hear your comments because uh, you guys have both been in it. Because I'm sure we all have favorite pieces. Like one of my favorite pieces is literally a picture that Susan took uh, of Frank, Jim, and uh, and Bill from across the road, the quarantine road. Mm. You know, it was like the night before their launch. And like the Saturn V in the background all lit up. And they're just standing across the road like you see in Apollo 13. Uh, and it was just snapshots Susan took. And uh, to me, it was incredible. I mean, that, that whole journey was incredible. I think it's one of those things that you know while you're doing it. Like, this is insane. And the exhibit from a museum professional standpoint is something I'm always going to be proud of. Uh, the friendship is something that you can't be friends with someone like that and not be changed. Uh, he want to be a better person. Uh, he really put me on, uh, on a track to get healthier, both, you know, physically and mentally. And, you know, I went on a crusade to get healthier and lose weight and just kind of get uh, a little bit more trim. And, and, uh, Frank would actually call me every other, well, it was about every, every week or so, uh, a, to check in to see where I was, as I was losing weight and also to threaten my life that if I ever went the opposite direction, he would quote, come beat the shit out of me. <laughs> Uh, so, <laughs> that's an old man who could who could do damage. He would that's he'd actually. Like, he'd that's not to... like a regular old man threatening <laughs> yeah. you. That's an old man who can actually kick an ass. He would do so, it. So yeah, that would inspire me to. Yeah, I would not want amazing. him mad at me. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but he was a great guy, and he really truly made you want to be a better person. You know the way he treated Susan, it made yeah. me want to you know reassess like, hey, I I need to be a. I need to be a Frank in my marriage, you know, oh, and, wow. uh, and, and be better, you know, and, uh, uh, I need to be better to my friends and coworkers and, and be better as a professional. I mean, uh, everywhere you could think of, uh, you just, you couldn't spend time with someone like that and not sit back in a steps of like, oh, wow, I could do this better. And then you would 
you know, you'd see Frank when he was hit by something and then he would, how he would react. And you're like, wow, that is, that is, a, that is, that is for lack of a better term, that is a man right there. And, yeah. uh, and I mean that in the, in the sense of like, that is a guy who, uh, he, he should strive to be like, I mean, what was, he was really something else. I, I can't say enough high, uh, praise about him. And again, then the friendship was so unexpected, but I'll cherish it. I mean, it was something that uh, every phone call, I had a nugget of wisdom and I had one uh, that he said about Deke Slayton. He said, a person who never che- cheapens his integrity is someone to be valued and looked up to. Nice. And, uh, and I think, uh, I think Frank also fit that bill. He never realized it that uh, when he said that. Uh, the other thing he told me was, uh, I, have to, I can go back. I used to keep notes and he would tell me something uh, kind of quirky or funny. I would actually, I had a folder just called Frank said this to me today. <laughs> My <laughs> uh, he also said, spend your life having fun because when you get old, the most important thing, you'll have your memories to so make sure they're a good one. Oh. Uh, and that was, that's one that I, uh, I really enjoyed. So I love that. Okay. So we've had some questions from our Patreon subscribers uh, and Saderquist sent this in. What about the influence that Charles McGee, I, I believe General Charles McGee, had on Frank in his career? If, if Chris knows any uh, of uh, Frank's favorite assignments during his military and NASA career, I would also love to hear about that. Absolutely. Anne is actually one of our museum docents. So hi, yeah. Anne. She's probably like right over on the other side of the building. But, uh, <laughs> so for those that don't know, Charles McGee was one of the Tuskegee Airmen, uh, African-American uh, pilot who flew from this country during World War II. Uh, they became famous as the Red Tail, um, but uh, they flew bomber escort, flying fighters uh, during the war. And they actually had a, a state flag bomber unit as well, trained out of Tuskegee, Alabama. So he, that was a long, hard fight for those men. Um, but post-war, some of them found command positions, and Colonel McGee, now General McGee, uh, was commanding a P-80 shooting star squadron, one of the first real operational jets uh, this country had. And... Frank gets assigned to his unit, the 44th Fighter Bomber Squadron. And he said, we walk in, and there he is. And I knew who he was, and I had already highly respected him. And he said, and I'll never forget the first day there. We all walked in. There was like three or four of us. And he just looks up from his desk, and he goes, a lot of squadron commanders will tell you, you play ball with me, and I'll play ball with you. If you play ball with me, or I'm going to ram the bat right up your ass. (laughs) And Frank was like, <laughs> I got up because I never forgot that. And he, here we were, you know, how many years later? He's like, that was what he called us. So I ran into Charles McGee here, and I'm like, <laughs> well, Colonel McGee, I was like, can I ask you this question? And you remember staying with me? He goes, who told you that story? And I said, Frank Boardman. And he started laughing. He goes, well, Frank told me this, told you that story, and then it really happened. He goes, I don't remember swearing, but he goes, if Frank said I did, I did. And <laughs> uh, we actually called him from, with Frank on the line, and Frank, like you, you're the one that said it, you know. <laughs> so, but uh, until the day we lost both of them, Frank uh, said that Colonel McGee, General McGee, was one of the greatest leaders he ever served under um, in, in the Air Force and in NASA. Uh, the P80 uh, shooting star was one he was very proud of being associated with, and I think each of his space missions, when he was very proud of, he was very proud of Apollo 8. Apollo 8, it was pretty much, uh, you know, a flawless mission. And that was something he was very proud of. He wanted it to be the perfect mission. Uh, what I think a lot of folks don't always realize is that it's a mission that 
arguably one of the most important space missions ever flown. He was very proud of that. Um, we had another question from John Wisenhunt, and I think I think you've kind of covered this, but uh, I think it's a good question. He said, much has been said about Borman's direct, no-nonsense management style. As he became an aerospace elder statesman, such as his EAA and Oshkosh work, did he seem to mellow somewhat? When it came to business, I think some people sometimes felt or, or, or thought that it was, you know, looking, looking cold or whatever, and not that at all. He's very warm, very nice guy. But he he wanted the schedule, and he 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 wanted to hit your target. And to be honest, he was trying to get the target to you. Yeah, you know, you've invited him here, you've flown him here. He was very much a uh, a time oriented. Where like I would literally hack the time. So if I was supposed to take him up at ten, and I was there at nine fifty eight, I'd go around the block so that I would roll up right at ten o'clock, and you know he he'd be like right on time. When it came <laughs> to like what I would say the business of like the the show or. You know, where he was here and he was, you know, guest speak, he wanted to be on time and prep. But as far as like what I would say personality, uh, it it surprised me how humorous he really uh, was uh, and how warm. Because I, I guess I, in my head, I picked up that like this guy's going to be no nonsense all the time. And and no, he, he was no nonsense about like the job at hand. Like, let's, let's go up and give a wonderful talk. And I want to hit this mark for you because uh, I'm representing... Apollo. I'm representing all the astronauts anytime I talk. Um, but when it came time to like, okay, that's done. He's going to give me grief over bad food or poor choice and apple crisp that I gave him or something like that. And no, uh, have a good, uh, have a good time with that. So hope that answers the question, but I, I could see absolutely where he was mission driven. He wanted to do a good job and he didn't want anybody to say, Hey, you know, Frank didn't, didn't hit the mark or the performance wasn't there. He wanted to make sure people had what they were expecting. I'll tell you a fun story. Uh, we were in a gift shop and he was very wonderfully giving. Like he was just very giving with his pot. Like, people would, would come up and want out autographs and he would absolutely, I mean, just happy to do it. And we tried to, you know, shield as much as we could. But, you know, people were always going to uh, get by. And, and, you know, and Frank was pretty like, uh, you know, if it wasn't during the air show, if it was an event he was here for and there's 150 people here to talk, he was like, let him, let him go. I'm happy to sign stuff. You know, we're talking a few thousand people that we had to like get him <laughs> out of here, you know? Uh, but we were in the gift shop the one time and there was a guy who was not sure we had landed on the moon. Wow. Uh, approached Frank and, uh, and said, I don't think we actually landed on the moon. And he goes, but you know, you, um, you know, you don't claim to have land on the moon. So I don't have much of a problem with you. And Frank is trying to buy a book, you know, and he's like, okay. And he goes, well, can I have your autograph? And Frank said, well, if I didn't land on the moon, why do you want my autograph? And he goes, well, in case I'm wrong. And Frank's like, well, catch me after the talk because I don't have a pen on me. And we go out and get my car and I'm starting it up and he just kind of gives me a nudge. I look over and he's holding a gold pen and he was like, I have a pen. He's like, if you're going to be stupid, at least be consistent. (laughs) (laughs) I thought they were forget that. so I, I do not believe that gentleman got his autograph, but, uh, <laughs> but it was uh, it was a good time. <laughs> That's amazing. All right. So, what do you think his peers would would say of Frank? I had that chance to spend some time with his peers, and um, I think the biggest thing is they all had a level of respect for him. He was one of the guys. If that makes sense, I mean, they would joke with each other and stuff like that. When it came to the work, it felt like 
if you wanted it done, just put Frank on it. I mean, one of them actually said, uh, you're, you're, you're never going to have to guess what Frank is thinking, because he's going to tell you. Yeah. Um, but, uh, that there was definitely a level of respect, uh, for his work, uh, both in quality and that he just, he would get it done. Just put him on it and stay out of the way and Frank will take care of it. Uh, and that's what I, that's what I picked up. The only other person I felt that same level of respect, uh, as far as like put that person on it and they'll just get it done is, uh, they all felt that way. At least to me, it feels like they felt that way with Gene Graham, mm. Gene's boss. You know, they'll, they'll take care of you. So obviously you mentioned earlier that Frank's claimed that his greatest achievement was getting Susan uh, to marry him. But beyond that, what do you think, perhaps career-wise, what do you think that Frank would most like to be remembered for? Matt, that is a loaded question right there. You know, everything I ever talked to him about, you know, he was just very proud uh, of the work that he did on Apollo 8 and Gemini, uh, of course. He was very proud of his time at Eastern. Mm. And I know that uh, if you dig into airline history, that, you know, got into a pretty rough time for all airlines. I mean, it was a very interesting time with the airline industry was growing. Um, but if it, to nail down one thing, it's that's, that's a pretty tough one. But um, I'll be honest with you, I think he's very proud of the mission he did. But I don't think he hung his hat on it. I think it was what's next. It's hard to even think of something he's more proud of than Susan, to be honest. Yeah. Um, wow. She, she absolutely meant the world to him. That was his world. I know there's people out there, you know, that obviously the Apollo uh, astronauts and Gemini astronauts that knew him at a different time. And I'm sure at that time, Gemini, Apollo, and the mission at hand was important. Hopefully growing young people's interest in aviation was very important to him. I mean, that's why we have what we have. I mean, if you think about it, that could have very easily gone a different way in a different direction. And, and Frank knew that he was very aware of the value of space artifacts. Um, but instead he wanted them somewhere where everybody could see them. And, and he, he told me like, hopefully some kids will come in here and they'll want to pursue their dreams, whether it's in space flight or wherever. Nail down one thing at that top, at top. I mean, he, He's proud of the, I know he's just very proud of certain portions of his life. West Point, he's very proud of being a graduate from there. But, uh, yeah, I think complicated. It's just so hard to think of something outside of Google, uh, to be honest. So, sorry, that's probably not an answer. I think it's a great answer. Yep. Shows us his heart. Absolutely. Um, Chris, thank you so much for, for joining us today and sharing these stories. This has, this has been absolutely amazing. And, oh. uh, no less than he deserved, in my opinion. Well, absolutely. Thank you. And, um, I appreciate it. Hopefully, uh, uh, you guys listened and enjoyed it. Thank you. Very fortunate to get to get to know him and get to hang out with him and, uh, and get rogue called giving me, uh, a lot of grief about my poor choice and desserts. Things like <laughs> that. And, uh, uh, but I appreciate you guys that asked me to come on to you. It, uh, turned out that maybe it was a little bit of healing that I needed as well. So thank you. Well, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. 77 Houston. Still, Rita. Sorry to disturb your lunch, but we have a message here we think you'd be interested in. We're coming up on a special time here. Mark, you have just exceeded the world's man's space flight endurance record. Okay, Emily, one that number one, that was just an amazing interview. And Chris shared such incredible insight there. 
into what clearly had become a very cool friendship between two people, which is just amazing. And hearing Chris talk about it blew me away. And I, yeah, there was definitely some dust in in the in the air. Uh, yes, a, a, f- yeah. a few moments. But with every story, it just reinforces what I already feel like I know about Frank Borman, which is we don't have enough Frank Bormans in the world. No, I was talking to my husband last week. This is kind. Of, this is kind of a diversion, but I was talking to um, my husband. And we, I was just talking, like, I feel like that entire generation, that generation born in the late 20s and the early 30s, and especially the, the Apollo guys, I feel like when they made that generation, they were just built way differently from other people. Like, if you look at somebody like Frank, this was somebody, even for somebody of his time, an astronaut of that era, I feel like he was very unique in a lot of ways. Like, he was very mission oriented and he was always just just devoted and i think he was devoted to everything he did you know whether it was the mission he was on you know even gemini 7 which (laughs) frankly does not look like a lot of fun having to sit with somebody for two friggin' weeks not my idea of something i'd want to do let's just be real i'd love to go to space but i would not want to replicate that mission (laughs) anytime soon even if it was with my husband i would not want to do it we would murder each other by the end of it so the fact that he was dedicated to taking that through to me in the 60s is just incredible. But this was somebody who just kind of, for me, it really sums up, almost defines the word devotion. I mean, and to his family as well, and to Susan, to his wife. You know, that is a legendary marriage. They were together for like 70, over 70 years. To me, that's just one of a kind. You don't hear about that. It's it's so beautifully portrayed in From the Earth to the Moon. David yes. Andrews and, and Rita Wilson do such a good job. So much so that I I thought it was dramatised. But then you find out it, it wasn't at all. And perhaps actually the reality was was even more intense than, than they how, how they portrayed it. That that love between the two of them. Um so strong. And and I th- I find that fascinating, both him and Jim Lovell, in this instance. Especially Frank, though, because Frank's such a hard man, right? He's such a yeah, hard exterior. A hard exterior, I should say, very hard exterior. Does not look like an inviting person, you know. <laughs> and yeah, a big softy. Yeah. When it when it comes when it comes to his wife and his family, so much love, so much love. And, oh yeah, and and that's. I think, I don't know if it's because the more you read about him and the more documentaries and, and the, hearing stories like what Chris has, has, has told us today, I feel like I knew Frank better than most of the other astronauts because there are these personal stories that have come out which just show show him to be such a human being that you'd you'd want to be like him. Exactly. And he's one of my ultimate heroes and... I'm absolutely gutted when when the new when you sent me the text on uh, on Thursday night was it Thursday yeah. it was Thursday wasn't it yeah it I was, was Thursday I was I was a mess I uh, I'm very sorry mess. I just didn't want you to hear it on like Twitter or something like that you know by by somebody who was like you know just random I'd rather you hear it from somebody you knew before you heard it 
on social media. Someone on Twitter earlier that day had posted, uh, who who I knew knew Frank, posted uh, in celebration yeah. of uh, Frank, not but not not explicitly saying what had happened, and uh, and in my head I was like, oh no, I I'm, I have a feeling, and then when when you confirmed it, I was like, oh god, genuinely, this is one of the, one of the big hardest one of ones of these we've had to deal with since we've started doing this podcast yes i just think the world of him i just think he's an absolute beast of a a human being that i'm always going to look up to and yeah when we have interviewed so many different people about the apollo program the amount of times i want to read books the amount of times that frank borman seems to be the hero he's a main uh, character yeah he is a main character yeah the, the amount of times he way. saved a day, yeah. The amount of times he saved a day, or or or, or did something. You're like, hang on a moment, Frank did that. That's what that can't be right. Yeah. He did that as well. Just just amazing, and and the world really has lost a giant. I think you said it in your obituary at the start. Um, you know, it, it certainly seems like the end of an era with him. I know there was others around who who were with him. This is a big one. This is a real big one. I've always loved Frank, and I love his book, Countdown. It it came out uh, many years ago, but it's still probably available on, my guess is uh, Amazon used books or something like that. So if you can find his biography or autobiography, I would highly recommend it. It is a a really good book. Another book that really um, I like that captured him was uh, Chasing the Moon. Uh, The Chasing Mm. the Moon, the book that was that went with the the companion to the documentary. And um, I really loved how that book sort of framed him as kind of the hero of the Apollo program because when people think, and this, I don't want anybody to take this as a diss to Neil Armstrong by any stretch of the imagination, but when most people think of Apollo, they think, oh, Neil Armstrong, first man to walk on the moon. And I think even Armstrong would admit that Frank is the one who helped get the program back together after the Apollo 1 fire. He's the one who kind of set the tone for that to happen. In that book, Frank really emerges as the hero, sort of bringing everything back together and saving the program in many ways. And a lot of people just do not know that. Frank, I think, gets overlooked in a lot of ways because he didn't walk on the moon. He also, I think, promoted sort of a kind of healing in the program as well because, you know, there were a lot of there was a lot of anger after that happened, understandably, you know, they'd lost three people who were very much valued in the program. Frank had lost his best friend. That couldn't have been easy for Frank to go through. And I think really he's one of the underrated heroes in getting everything back together. So Apollo 8 could happen. So Apollo 11 happened on time. You know, Mm -hmm. they got it done before the end of the decade. So I admire him a lot for that. But I, like we both said, you know, I mainly admire him for his devotion to his wife especially in her later years um because mm. he was taking care of her in her later years start to finish he he was devoted to her oh man, that quote that quote from chris where he said i need to be more like frank in my marriage that was like oh wow that was uh that was a really powerful thing that that chris said well i think i could be too you know this is somebody who is very selfless and very devoted devoted that word keeps coming up in my speech but i feel like he is like the definition of that he was just devoted to everything he did yeah he carried it all the way through the end he didn't want to be the person people are like man he really half-assed that or something like that yeah yeah. he did that in every manner of his life i feel and that's just that's not a quality you see a lot 
to me, that's something to be admired. Like what Chris said about integrity, you know, he talked about Deke Slayton and this was somebody who approached everything with a sense of integrity. Frank, I think that could sum him up like that as well. And I don't know if we'll see people like that again. Oh, I hope so. Two, I've got two more points. Number one, I, I'm very disappointed, and this carries on from what you said earlier. I'm, I was very disappointed with almost a lack of coverage since Frank died in the mainstream press. Uh, that Me ha- too. It has existed, and it, it's there. If you look hard enough on the BBC, you'll find an article. They talked about him on Radio 4 for a little bit, which is, which is cool, and, and so on and so forth. When Neil Armstrong died, it was front-page news. Rightly yeah. so. I'm not saying it shouldn't have been. Yeah. I love Neil Armstrong. Yeah, we're not he's, dissing Neil. We're he's not dissing my, him. He's, he's, in, yeah, he's in my top five, of which I have got a top 50. And Neil, Neil's in my top five along, alongside yeah. Yeah. Frank. Right? But, but what Frank achieved with Apollo 8 gets so overlooked as oh, yeah. in terms of the importance. That mission is arguably a harder mission than Apollo 11. There's more unknowns in that mission than Apollo oh, yeah. 11. It was more historic in many ways than Apollo 11, and it does, that mission on the whole doesn't get doesn't get the credit it deserves. Yeah. But he was the commander of that mission. Yeah, it was risky uh, as hell. Nobody, I don't think yeah. a lot of people believe they would come back from that. Absolutely, it was a basically a crude test flight. I mean, that's what it was. There's another aspect of that, which is in Tizel Muir Harmony's book Operation Moonglow. You learn that Frank was also a politician. He was sent on his own world tour, on his own, to go and meet dignitaries. He was sent out after that. When you get to Apollo 11, they were there together. And I know Neil was amazing on those tours. Both Buzz and Mike say how great Neil was. But Frank was sent to these places on his own. Go and meet the Queen on your own. Go go and meet all these people on your own. And he was incredible. He lit up a room. Like they, apparently his speech was speeches were stopping people. And, and you don't necessarily equate that with with Frank. The more you find out about him, the more you realise how incredible he was as a person. And, and my final thoughts on, the, on, on, the, on his passing. Emily, we often, I don't know, I often get asked, why do I love space so much? Why do I love the Apollo program so much? And sure, I love the moon. I think it's fascinating. I love looking at it. I love looking at it for a telescope. I would love to go there. I'd love to walk on the surface. I love the ambition of what they tried to do with the Apollo program. But the thing that really, really grabs me is the people, the people that did it, the people that were involved. And if I was to put my finger on one person who I think is the embodiment of all of everything I love about Apollo... It's Frank Borman. Yep. Oh, yeah. Every, every single thing that it would be him. And that's why I think this really is a, a, a huge loss. A huge, it is. huge loss. Absolutely. There's um, a National Geographic, I think it was from 1964, and it was after Mercury and before Gemini. Uh, Gemini, 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 whatever. And... Um, <laughs> So there there was a Nat Geo, and the last picture on the last page of an astronaut was Frank Borman. And I felt that was fitting because it sort of introduced, it was like, you know, this is the face of one of the astronauts who will be flying Gemini. And I was like, to me, that was very, 
appropriate and timely that they put that in there because I feel like he defined a lot of the future of spaceflight at that point. Even back then, they kind of knew this person has that quality that they're going to define a lot of this era. Yeah, absolutely. And, and he really did. He really did. As always, the full interview will be available on our Patreon page for those who wish to watch it. And links to Chris's social media and the EAA Museum will be in our show notes, which you can find at spaceandthingspodcast.com or click in the link in the description of this podcast episode in your podcast provider. Now, this interview and what we've just talked about uh, is longer than we aim normally with interviews, but we think this is a topic where we didn't want to limit it. So we're not going to do a what caught our eye in spaceflight this week. But what I will say is some happier news Fred Hayes turned 90 today as we record this. And when we talk about giants and we talk about amazing people and, and, and how these people were built slightly different, ain't there another example right there? So happy birthday, Fredo. Yes, happy birthday. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. Thanks for joining us this week. Uh, another sad episode, but we hope that we honoured the memory of Frank Borman in a really positive way. We'll be back next week, but don't forget, in space, no one can hear you me. This has been the Space and Things Podcast with Emily Carney and Dave Giles. <laughs>